Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Have you ever found that your attention sometimes get lost? Uh, I've noticed that several times actually during some of my conversations here on on the story box. I love calling them brain farts. Well, my guest today is actually a a doctor who and professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She has a brand new book out called Peak Mind. Find your focus, own your attention, invest 12 minutes a day. Her name is Dr. Amishi Jha. Now, for those of you that don't know who she is, uh, not only is she a professor of psychology at the University of Miami, she serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded way back in 2010. She received her PhD from the University of California, Davis, and postdoctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University. Uh, Dr. Jar's work has been featured at NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon, believe it or not. She has also recovered, uh, received coverage sorry, in the New York Times, NPR, Time, Forbes, and many, many others. Uh, and she has a brand new book out called Peak Mind, as I mentioned before. Uh, pay attention to your attention. Your attention fuels your success, believe it or not. But that uh, it, I'm very excited to actually unbox this story for you guys and, and the wisdom and the advice that uh, Dr. Mishi does share. But if you do want to get a copy of her book, the research shows we are missing 50% of our lives. Why? Because we aren't paying too much attention. From the constant buzz of our phone, the law of media feeds uh, to your unrelenting, all-encompassing and ever-growing mental to-do lists. The demands on your attention have never been so severe. The result is an escalating crisis where we feel mentally foggy, like I said, my mental brain farts, I love saying that, uh, uh, scattered and overwhelmed. Remarkably, the solution to our attention crisis has been right in front of us the entire time. 
Acclaimed neuroscientist Dr. Amishi Jha, PhD, has dedicated her life's work to understanding the science of attention at every level, from brain imaging studies in a lab to field testing soldiers, athletes, students, and firefighters. Her mission has been to uh, scientifically determine how we can harness the full power of our attention to better meet all that life demands. Dr. Jar expertly guides you, the reader, or the listener right now through fascinating research, debunking common assumptions, and offering stunning new insights into where presence and purpose really do come from. Uh, Peak Mind reveals easy to do uh, and adaptable, flexible 12-minute-a-day exercises to lift the mental fog, uh, declutter the mind, and strengthen focus so you can experience more of your life. And we do cover this book and many other amazing topics revolving around focus in this conversation. Uh, So I know you guys are going to love it. If you do get something from it, please share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know about this one. Uh, I myself struggle with maintaining my focus, even at the best of times. Uh, I do my absolute best, but this was a conversation that really, really did help me hone in on being better at focusing in my conversations and in my my work as a whole too. So uh, go get a copy of Dr. Jar's new book. Uh, its links will be in the show notes below to make it easy for you. Don't forget get before you go to subscribe and leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Really do appreciate each and every one of you that has left a review and do continue to come back each and every week. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It's time to journey with me into this story box and learn more about focus and our peak mind, what that really means as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than Dr. Amishi Jha. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. And and like I was just telling you a moment ago, I love having neuroscientists on the show. I love diving into science, even though I sucked at it in high school. <laughs> I am much more interested and well-versed in it now, I hope. <laughs> and I love asking questions, revolving the brain, peak performance, how we, how we can optimize our own selves to become better uh, as human beings. So really grateful that you took the time to be here today. Before we dive officially into your backstory, your new book, all the amazing things, I have one question that I normally love asking all my guests at the very start, which is what does success look like for you? Mm. Ooh, that's a good one. So to me, success is not only performing in an excellent manner, meaning achieving my goals, but doing it with some care and kindness for myself in the process. Mm. When did you discover that this was success for you? Has it been this gradual thing over time or is it more of a catalyst moment somewhere? The second piece is definitely new. (laughs) (laughs) And what I realized is if we just try to push ourselves without that component of self-reflection, self-awareness, and even essentially self-care, though I don't usually use that word, that phrase, we're going to burn out and nothing we do will actually benefit anyone if we are spent out and and sort of angry at the whole process. Mm -hmm. So talking about self-reflection in in terms of why people don't normally do self-reflection, why is that not a, a normal habit that people have in their life, you think? I think it goes to the bigger topic that I think we'll dive into, which is Mm -hmm where our attention tends to go. And once we're done with the action, it's very rare that we're going to 
actually look back to say, what, what was my mind during all of this? Where was I actually during the process, whatever action that just transpired, even if I led the action? So doing that ends up being a very useful bonus tool that we can add to our toolkit. Before we dive further into the bigger topic, uh, I'm curious about how you got started in psychology, neuroscience, these sorts of fields. Was this something that you always wanted to study? Kind of and kind of not. I thought while I was growing up, you know, I'm an Indian woman living in the U.S. <laughs> Some level I thought I was supposed to be a doctor. Like all Indian <laughs> women are either doctors or Indian people. Many tend to be doctors, accountants, computer software engineers, et cetera. So it always felt like there was just some predisposition I had to go do this thing called being a medical doctor. And to the point where I actually started volunteering in a hospital because I thought that was going to be my life path. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I discovered there was no way I was doing that. I mean, it was just not for me. I I commend the people that want to do that kind of work. But to me, uh, it felt like I just didn't want to be around sickness and I didn't want to uh, explore solutions for people. I was much more interested in sort of how things worked. And one of the posts that I had in my volunteer time was in the brain injury unit. Mm. And that sort of really woke me up. It was like all my interest in the mind and, and really some kind of latent interest in psychology at some level connected with this topic of, of, brain and the brain that can change and heal itself and transform itself. So working in the brain inner the working in the brain injury unit allowed me a window into seeing people actually change their own brains, actually yeah. recover from severe brain injury. And then I was kind of hooked. Then I went on to do an undergrad degree in neuroscience and a PhD and then have not really looked back or stopped since. So it went from medicine to really basic science having to do with the mind and brain. Was there anything is something that I'm curious about. Was there anything that sort of came across as confronting to you when you looked at the brain and how the brain works and brain injury? Well, for brain injury in particular, it was that so much of recovery is about practicing the kinds of skills that we've lost, even mentally. So for example, even those early days when I'd first started volunteering at the hospital, there was this patient that I thought was a quadriplegic. He could not, he had a, it was a terrible motorcycle accident, couldn't move any of his limbs. And I, my job as the, you know, the low level volunteer was to just take him outside for some fresh air. So initially there was this very large kind of contraption that was like a, you know, kind of a, um, a wheelchair that would allow full access for me moving him around. And then eventually it was almost like one day I got there and he was moving himself around in a new wheelchair, just using a part of his hand. And I was like, this is amazing. I didn't know that, you know, I, I didn't tell him this, but I was like, I didn't know that you could, you were able to do this. And then he kind of shared with me that even he would do physical therapy all day, but then at night when he was, you know, going to bed, essentially, he said, I would just envision, he said to me, you know, I'm envisioning myself pushing the lever over and over again. And that's helping me train my brain. Mm. And that was like amazing to me. You know, now, of course, as somebody who's been in this field for a long time and who works with people that are interested in performance psychology, et cetera, this is a very common mental training technique. You know, golfers will visualize their swing or, um, you know, baseball players throwing the pitch or whatever it is, 
you can rehearse it in your mind and find that it actually benefits actual performance. So mm. that piece was very exciting. The other piece that w- I would just to add on to that, that I find very still thrilling um, is that the adult brain can grow new neurons and that we can not only recover from injury, but we can actually rewire our own brain through mental exercise to optimize our own performance. And in particular for me, it was an interest in how we might train our attention to be stronger and more resilient. Let me come back to, because if I was to ask you the question, how we can do that, I feel like we'll be going on for ages because it's a massive <laughs> question because uh, there's a lot, yeah. to, lot to unpack there. But I wanted to go into, I guess, the idea of uh, for us as, or for me, someone that hasn't really studied uh, the brain that much, I guess we've been told a certain thing about how powerful the brain really is. And I want to go on thinking that my brain is incredibly powerful. I'm super smart. I'm a genius, blah, 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 which is probably not the case, right? (laughs) But anyway, uh, I wanted to ask you just how powerful would you say is an average brain compared to that of a genius's brain? Or is there any distinction at all? Oh, hmm. Well, at some level, our, our brain is kind of an amazing thing, right? I mean, it's got so much complexity to it. And it was interesting. My son recently asked me, you know, do you think you'll ever, he's 19, he's a college student. So he's asking all kinds of annoying questions to his (laughs) professor mom. Now that he's used to doing that at school, but he said, you know, we ever understand the full complexity of the brain in your lifetime. Mm. And I said, no way. And he said, you know, well, do you think, he kind of pushed it beyond that. He's like, do you think you'll ever understand you, meaning the entirety of the human being at any point in time, do you think we'll ever understand the nature of the brain? And I still was like, I don't really know if that's going to happen because at some level, we'll, we're going to be bound by our own blindness because we're looking at ourselves. Yeah. And then, of course, his response was like, well, then why bother? Right? <laughs> why are you bothering? But of course, to me, that is the journey. That is the excitement, because if we can take what we perceive as the most complex thing that exists and start understanding its power, its vulnerability, its trainability, then there's a lot to learn there that I think is not only intrinsically interesting, but actually can advantage people. So Mm. I guess I'm not so interested in how an ordinary brain versus a genius brain may differ. I'm more interested in how certain functions like attention can recalibrate the way the whole thing works moment by moment. Mm. And regardless of what our particular set point is regarding our intelligence or our disposition, we all have the capacity to enhance and alter ourselves. So that's more sort of my, my orientation. So speaking more in line with your son's question, which is something that I would probably ask, (laughs) Um, uh, more, more or less the area of attention that you actually studied. So do you think that you have, I guess, uh, studied, all of attention or is there still more to go? You know, it's a great question because at some level, when I was, before I started studying the topic of mindfulness training, which we will certainly talk about, I was what I would consider to be a basic attention researcher, meaning my interest was in the basic mechanisms, the basic brain mechanisms. How is this system organized? In what ways are brain regions working together to actualize it? What are the different subsystems, processes, et cetera? I was very satisfied with that. And I actually thought we were starting to get a very strong handle on how attention works. Like I was feeling great about the field and it was pretty new, right? Around 50 years or so of 
of solid, what we call cognitive neuroscience, where we're connecting important cognitive functions to brain, brain function. But then I, at some point, actually right around the time my son was quite young, experienced my own sort of crisis of attention. Mm. And then I looked to my field and I was like, we don't know anything about how to help people when they have their own crisis of attention. And then I was like, there's a whole other world here that needs to be explored, which at least in the way that I think about it now is the new science of attention. And for sure, we're in our infancy of that whole area. Mm. So let's dive into attention and mindfulness for a moment. And I want my audience to really understand uh, which side of the brain firstly attention actually is involved with and and is mindfulness, is, is that what you're talking about as a whole or is it something more to it than that? Well, we can definitely talk through what even mindfulness means because now it's such a buzzword that we might not even, when you say it and when I say it, we might mean very different things. Yeah. Just <laughs> the whole reason that, so I, I described my own sort of crisis of attention and just to unpack what that was, essentially I felt incredibly distracted. I felt super preoccupied and like I wasn't really here. And one of the kind of pivotal moments for me was I was reading my son. He was probably like not even three at that point, a bedtime story, a book I'd probably read a hundred times. You know, like I knew this book, like I could probably recite it. If I closed my eyes, I could recite it back to you. But at some point during it, he like stopped me, put his little hand, he's sitting in my lap, put his hand on, and stopped me from reading it. And he asked me a question about it. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, I don't know what he's referring to. He's referring to an image of the, of the character in the book on the page but I was in, on autopilot, serious autopilot. Mm. And this was something that I was supposedly doing because I love to do it. I love, of course, I love my child and I'm spending this time with him because I thought it was valuable. But if I'm not there, even if I'm physically there, what's the use? What's yeah. the point of any of it, right? And so the crisis for me became, how do I become more embodied? How do I actually experience paying attention moment by moment in my life? That's where my own home field and 50 years of research could not help me. There was nothing mm. that could guide me. In fact, it wasn't even the kind of terrain that um, that was discussed at all. Mm. At the same time, in my own lab, we were doing studies where we were finding um, that attention is not only powerful, it can recalibrate, like I said, the entirety of the way the brain functions, including our perception, decision-making, et cetera, mood. But what we were finding is that it was super easy to mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> and the kinds of things that were messing it up, which I ended up realizing, oh my gosh, that's the same thing that's messing me up, were things like stress, threat, negative mood, forcing yourself to multitask. These were all things that were kind of draining out attentional resources to the point where people were not functioning well and reliably they would fail on very simple tasks of attention. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness in my, from a laboratory perspective entered the scene because I was like, we got to find a solution. I mean, stress, threat, poor mood, these are part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. I happen to be experiencing that, but I'm not the only one. You know, most people are experiencing this. And for certain professions, like think of emergency services people, or we work with, for example, active duty military, this is not just simply the ups and downs of life. This is the professional milieu in which we require that people can work at their best under very, very difficult circumstances. Mm. So that's the, that's the orientation I take toward mindfulness training. I would say personally, I was a skeptic. I didn't even really understand the word. I thought it was some weird new agey thing that I would not want anything to do with. And frankly, I had a lot of sort of cultural baggage against it being an Indian woman. Like that's great for my parents, but no, thank you. I'm a Western trained scientist. We'll do the serious stuff. Mm. So just to say that, that it's not something obvious and it entered my lab for a very specific reason 
to solve or at least attempt to investigate whether it solved a potential vulnerability of this very powerful brain system. Mm. I doing this podcast, it's obvious that I've got to pay a lot of attention. I've got to be present. I've got to focus in and I've got to try and think of questions ahead of time most of the time when I'm doing organic conversations. And I, I have had a couple of times where I've kind of had like these brain farts where I've just lost it. <laughs> and I, I've always been curious, why is there something wrong with my brain there? Or is it more or less the result of stress? Because uh, nothing goes on in the brain. It's just, I am, I just don't have anything going on. <laughs> yeah, so I'm blank. curious, why is that? Is that, that the blank. Like there's just nothing there. It's just completely blank. There's nothing there. Oh gosh. Well, first of all, I feel your pain and you're younger than me, but I, it happened more and more. I'll welcome to my world. Oh, dear. It's a very natural part of healthy aging actually, but you know, it, it, we could call it brain blanking or whatever, but there's many reasons this type of stuff can happen that are part of our normal functioning. So let's just start with like, there's nothing organically wrong with your brain. I'm sure you're healthy. Um, and it can definitely happen to all of us. Oftentimes, it's not even that there's nothing there. It's that we've been hijacked away from whatever the mental content was. And then we kind of look back to what was I thinking about? It's gone. Mm -hmm. Like we we can't come back to what the intended target was. And, you know, we have this so often, like, I'm sure you walked into a room like stealthfully, right? Like, and then you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. What did I come in here for? Right? Yeah. Very common. And it probably what happened in the time that you decided to take walk and you actually got to the room is that you were having a thousand other thoughts and it just knocked out whatever was in the front of your working memory so that it wasn't available to you. And I bet probably you got halfway down the hall and like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> it's a very common things the brain does. And it's not that there's organic failures. It's that the brain is a battlefield, mm. that that, that uh, content is constantly under a competitive uh, state. So mm. every thought you have, every emotion that arises Every and, and by the way, this is just all internal, right? And then let's add to that our phones and our newest social media feeds. There's constant competition for a very precious and very limited brain resource. Mm. And when that competition results in a failure to get us the content we want, we've experienced that as sort of a blankness. Mm. I just want to understand this more more clearly. So you're saying that me having those brain farts are actually a healthy sign of aging because I was worried that it'd be early onset Alzheimer's or dementia at my age of 25. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not a clinician. I can't, I can't decide <laughs> if you have any problems, but my sense is you're within the normal range of behavior and it's the normal human experience to to have this happen. And and frankly, it can happen more often under, under certain stressful or preoccupying circumstances. And, you know, for you, if you forgot something in the middle of a sentence, you'll be okay. Nothing's grave is going to happen to you. Even if you walk to a room and forget in two seconds, you can go back. What I was interested in is what to do for people. So that moments like that, what we might call distractibility or mind wandering or mind blanking in some cases, when that happens often, and when that happens, when it is consequential, almost life or death, then you got to really take a look at it. Yeah. And so let's put the blanking to the side because there's a lot of interesting reasons for that. And just talk more about maybe the topic of mind wandering. And it gets back to your question regarding mindfulness and why mindfulness and what is it, et cetera. Um, so just to say, 
it often happens that the things that our, our brain does that are so awesome and the result of our evolutionary advantages can also become the same things can become kryptonite for us. Yeah. And that happens to be the case when we talk about this very important capacity we have called mental time travel. And so mental time travel is actually sort of the pinnacle of brain evolution, right? We can transport ourselves not only in time, but we can transport ourselves into other people's minds. Mm. Like if we take somebody else's perspective, we've actually traveled into their body, are looking out of their eyes and trying to see the universe from their perspective. So those are very powerful capacities and very useful, right? So when we think about mental time travel within our own mind, it might be Rewinding the mind to an episode that has occurred before, some past experience, and you're reflecting on it like, oh, last time I had this problem, I did this. Or you're fast forwarding so that you're planning the next thing, or just like you were saying, you know, even planning before you host a podcast, uh, you've you've thought ahead and you're planning ahead. Very, very powerful things to, thing to do. And by the way, when we do that, our attention is actually in that moment. When you're in the past, your attention is in the past. It's within the simulated experience of your mind reliving and unpacking that memory of the past. Mm. So it's not just that our mind is going back. When I say our mind is going back, it's that a memory is emerging and our attention is now transported to that moment. Mm. Well, it ends up that under high stress or demanding circumstances, or there's just too much going on, too much distractibility, when we end up having those mental time travel moments, it's not just a productive reflection of the past or a productive planning for the future, but it's like bad. <laughs> and what I mean by that, it's we end up like ruminating and reliving and regretting events when we think about the past. It's not only, oh, this happened before. It's like, that's so terrible it happened. Why did it happen? Why did I say this, right? We That inner loop, sometimes I refer to it as sort of the loop of doom where we're just re rehashing the yeah. same content. It's going nowhere. We're not solving any problems. Mm-hmm. Same thing for the future. We're catastrophizing and worrying and, and kind of caught in a, in a simulated reality of our own making that frankly, you know, hasn't happened yet, but may never happen. We're just making it up. So now it's a real problem for our attention because not only do we feel terrible and we're not solving any problems, but we are spending out this very precious brain resource of attention and it's not serving us because as we're getting temporally hijacked and our attention's moving around, we're missing out on what's going on right now. And typically the present moment demands, especially if it's a high stress circumstance, aren't going to go away. Mm. So this is where we want a solution in which we can train our mind to show up in the present moment on demand so that we can actually experience the moment to moment unfolding of our lives. Mm. And that's very hard to do by default because it ends up that this mental time traveling business that we've been talking about happens about 50% of our waking experience, our our attention is not in the task at hand. No, it, it's so easy. And I'll, I've noticed this as well. It's so easy to look at all the what ifs and to like when you walk down the street, you're constantly thinking about what that person is thinking about you, how you walk, how you look, all these sorts of things. And it's amazing how your brain does that. And I've always been curious, where does that start? Is it more or less when you're just a kid? Because I don't remember that happening when I was a kid. I don't think I really cared. Or was it when I went through puberty or adolescence and started forming ideas of the world? Was it 
is that your experience when you're doing this sort of research from where well, it started? Yeah, just to say that the thing you're talking about is essentially we are preoccupied by others' perceptions of us. Our mind may move. Like when now when we're doing our mind traveling, we're moving into the mind of somebody else and they're judging us. It's like yeah. we may judge ourselves, but now other people are judging us and we're preoccupied about that, right? So it's this proliferation of distracting content that isn't about getting to where you need to go when you're walking or even what you might anticipate will happen wherever you arrive if you're meeting friends or whatever. It's sort of this almost, uh, well, definitely useless content because it's not helping you. And it actually may preoccupy you to do useful things. Mm -hmm. So if your question is, why do we do that? Why does our mind wander at all? That's a really good question, right? Because the first thing I'll say, given that I just told you it happens 50% of our waking moments, is not happening by accident. The brain does not do anything, really. It's a very metabolically efficient organ. If half of our energy is being spent on this kind of stuff, it's got to have a purpose. Yeah. And so now we want to think through, well, why, why would it happen? What's the evolutionary pressures that led to it? And most of the time, probably it's not problematic. It's probably useful. Like all those kinds of things have to come into play. So let's just kind of think back to our evolutionary ancestors, because frankly, the brain we have right now as human beings is an evolutionary success story. Like we are the result of a lot of good, good results, right? Everybody that's in our ancestral line made it to the point of reproducing at least so that we can be here. And that's no, that's no small feat. So one thing to think about with regard to mind wandering is what would happen if you, if your attention didn't wax and wane, like, what would that feel like? You'd be, you'd mm. go somewhere, you'd focus on something like, let's say our ancient ancestors are at a watering hole, right? Early mammals, they're, they want to drink water. They go to the watering hole. Oh, great. I see water. They're there. They're focused on drinking. Everything else becomes completely absent to them because they're just focused on the water. Well, it's not going to be too long before they're going to be eaten. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, you aren't paying attention to your surroundings. A predator will come by and you will become lunch. So just having a little bit of a wavering mind will help you sample the environment, ensure that the goal you have in mind is being honored, but also that you're aware of your surroundings itself. And then now take that to kind of modern day or more evolved, uh, closer to our, our current day mind brain. Um, it's very helpful, as we just talked about, to be able to time travel and mind travel. These are very useful things and, and really a sign of our planful, evolved brain. So attentional cycling, attentional wavering, distractibility, this, this is actually a good thing. The, the times that we get into trouble is when there is something else to do mm. and we can't get ourselves to be present in that moment. When these loop of doom scenarios where we're, we're just stuck in rumination or worry and we're, we can't get ourselves out of it, that's when it becomes a real problem. Mm. And so so that's sort of the, the good news is there's really this is the nature of the brain. There's nothing wrong except when there's something wrong and it feels bad. Yeah. And then sort of the better news that I'm I'm really interested in pursuing is, well, are there training modalities? And the answer is yes, there are training modalities where we can actually train our brain to show up in the here and the now. Mm. And that's what mindfulness actually is. I mean, oftentimes I'll talk about mindfulness as keeping that, you know, if you think about an MP3 player with a rewind and fast forward, it's really keeping the button right on, right on play and doing that in a very particular way so that we're paying attention to our present moment experience without what I'd call um, mental elaboration or reactivity. So we're not telling a story about what's happening. We're just experiencing it. Mm. 
And that lack of elaboration and that lack of reactivity allows us a steadiness that gives us more information about the raw data of what's occurring. And when we do that, we're more likely to be able to solve problems and tackle challenges than if we're lost in a distracted and stressed mind. Hmm. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to go, you mentioned towards the very beginning of this conversation, we can, uh, increase the, the motor neurons in our brain. And I, I find that very, very interesting, actually. Um, how can we, here's, here's going to be the big question. Yeah, so yeah. We'll, we'll take it one, one bit at a time. How, how can we do that? How can we start taming our brain that is wandering in the first place? And what are some things that we can start doing from the very start? Like, yeah. Okay. Great, great question. That's sort of the entire motivation of why I wrote the book, because what I realized is we were doing studies with these incredibly high stress, high demand groups. We were finding a suite of mindfulness practices that we were offering as brain training and and they were benefiting and they were benefiting, not just like in general, they were benefiting during pre-deployment training or even deployment itself. Or if it was elite athletes, it was during pre-season training. It was students. It was during the academic semester. So this is consequential because the bad news that we actually learned was all those things I was telling you about earlier, stress, threat, poor mood. If people experience those over a protracted period of time, let's say four to eight to, you know, I don't know, 14, 15 weeks, could be months. Mm -hmm. When we bring them into the lab and we test their attention over the course of that period of time, their attention gets worse. So it truly is the case that for a student, for example, their attentional capacity is lower at the end of the semester than at the beginning of the semester. And now what do you have to do? Write your final papers, right? So, or think about the case of a soldier. I mean, you're preparing for deployment. Now you're in a war zone and you have less attention than you did before you left. So this is what I mean by by consequential. And part of the motivation I had in wanting to now bring this to more people is like, they're not the only ones. We're all experiencing these stresses and pressures. And by the way, we happen to be in a global pandemic where Mm. I know that, for example, in Australia, there's been a quite a long period of lockdown. And so anyway, point is, this is part of our current human experience. And if we are experiencing cognitive fog because of the level of demand, why don't we start training? So then the next question becomes, just like you said, okay, what do I do? What's the training regime? And this actually requires us, and we could, we should talk about it a little bit, of like understanding what attention actually is. Mm. Because what we've talked about so far is kind of a general term. You know, probably if I didn't start unpacking it, we'd use the term and we'd probably mean something like focus. And yeah. focus is certainly a part of it, but that's not the full scope of what attention is. So maybe first let's talk about what it is. And then, and then I can tell you why it is that particular mindfulness training practices can help. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. So the first one's easy, focus. So with that with that's a brain system called attentional orienting and I like to use the metaphor of uh focus is like a flashlight. So or a torch, let's say. And I know that people use the term torch in other parts of the country or world. So essentially wherever you direct that torch, you're going to have privileged access to information. If you're in a darkened path, that's a really useful lifeline, right? You get crisp clear information. You won't fall on a rock or trip on a branch or whatever. And we can decide how we're going to direct it. So I can point the flashlight. I can direct it. I can actually direct it not only to the external environment, but I can direct it to the internal environment. So right now, if I said, 
direct your attention to the sensations at the bottoms of your feet. Like you can do that. You probably were not thinking about your feet before I said it, but once I said that, yes, you could say, oh, it feels kind of cool or clammy or whatever the heck it's happening, but we can willfully do that. But the other thing about the flashlight that's really important is it gets pulled as well. So if you're on that darkened path and you hear some kind of rustling behind you, soon enough, your attention is going to snap and your flashlight literal torch is going to move to where you think you heard the sound from. That happens all the time. So our attention can be directed and it can be magnetically pulled. But then the main feature is it's narrow and limited. So it's not everything. It's just a small amount of stuff. And that's really why we developed it because we needed to be able to subsample a part of the world Mm. for more clarity and access. But that's not the full story about attention. There's two other systems. So just to briefly talk about those, the exact opposite of a flashlight and this narrowing is something I call the floodlight. So just like I've got a floodlight on top of my garage door, like it's just broad and receptive. It's just whatever appears there. And what that is doing is essentially allowing whatever emerges in the present moment, you know, whether it's a raccoon in my neighborhood or whatever, is what's happening right now. And we call that the brain's alerting system. The brain's alerting system does not want to narrow because you never know what's going to show up and you've got to be ready for anything. So it's broad, receptive. It doesn't privilege some information over others. What it really privileges is the present moment, like right now. So the floodlight's a really helpful thing to think about. And then the third system is advantaging our our information processing based on our goals. So what is my goal right now, right? So like right now, it's look at Jay's face, ensure that I understand the questions he's asking. My goal is not to look on my phone for, you know, another blue scarf. Like it's not that, it's this. So everything I do will be guided by the goal I currently have. And and what I call this system, well, it's called formally the, the executive functioning system. And it's just like the executive of a company you are to ensure that everything's happening according to plan, but you're not doing every little thing. You're just mm-hmm. doing the one thing, et cetera. So anyway, so all three of those systems exist. They're important. They're quite different uh, from each other. And mindfulness practices end up touching on each of those, exercising each of those, which actually is part of keeping them strong and healthy and providing us the opportunity to use them in the moment when we need it. Wow. And this is exactly what you unpack in your new book, Peak Mind? You got it. Wow. (laughs) But, um, I mean, I know our time is kind of short, but I can give one quick example of how we might do this if it's helpful. Please do, yes. Okay. So one very, I would say probably the most common example of of, um, a mindfulness practice is something we call, I call it the find your flashlight practice. Cause it's like this thing we carry around with us, our focus half the time, we don't know where it is. Mm. So the, the instruction is very straightforward and you can do it. You know, I recommend working up to about 12 minutes a day, but you know, you can do it right now, even as I'm, I'm talking about it, 30 seconds. It's a, it's a very simple thing. And what it gives you by the end is like, you know, where your attention is in this moment. Now it could get yanked away in the next moment, but you're practicing knowing where your flashlight is is directed. So Mm. what we do to simulate just being in the present moment is we use a sensory experience that is unfolding in real time. And that really only happens moment by moment. And that happens to be breath related sensations. Like Mm. you can't save up the breath. You can't think about it for later. It's unfolding right now. We're breathing, right? And it's a, it's sort of a, a nice target for our attention 
because it has that quality of present centeredness and that shifting nature. So the target for a mindfulness or find your focus practice is breath-related sensations. Now, that doesn't mean think about your breath or control your breath. It's just pay attention to your breath and be very, very granular. Take that flashlight and like almost think of it as a laser pointer. What's the most prominent breath-related sensation I'm having right now? That's where I'm going to point that laser pointer. So some people, it could be the tip of your nose or maybe just something in your throat or your chest moving up and down. Whatever it is for you, you're going to commit that for the short period of time, you're going to do the practice. That flashlight is going to be pointed to that breath-related sensation. That's the target. Mm. Soon enough, you do this, you know, you're focusing on breath-related sensations. Your mind, it will wander. Like I said, that the default is 50% of our waking moments that's wandering. So the next step of the instruction is when you notice that your mind has wandered away from those breath-related sensations, simply redirect your attention back. So in that short practice, we've used our flashlight to point at the target. We're using our floodlight to check out what's going on. And our executive control is saying, stay on task. You said, Mm -hmm. you know, this breath-related sensation. So it's such a nice, easy way to think about exercising all of those systems. And then we're getting more and more familiar with the landscape of our own mind. And it's not about becoming excellent breath followers. It is about being able to use these capacities when it's not about following your breath, but noticing in the context of a conversation, oh, my mind wandered away, bring it back or writing a report or reading a book. Like when your mind wanders away, most of the time we're super unaware that we're gone away and there's no chance of bringing it back if we're not even sure where it is. Yeah. I love how you mentioned the flashlight principle uh, or tool that people can use what i love doing as well is i blink twice and then i breathe in and out slowly and that the blinking twice is like a trigger for me if i am thinking about a negative thought or if i've got some some emotion that i don't like and i want to remove it the blink twice gets me in that that state of where i need to change it and then i breathe in and out so that the like you mentioned the chest going up and down so that movement And I repeat it over and over and over again until that negative loop is no longer there and until I'm back where I need to be or where I want to be, (laughs) actually. So that that works for me. It might not work for other people because there's a a myriad of other strategies, but I just thought I'd I'd say that because I like the light bulb um, analogy. That's that's so cool. (laughs) Um, You know, it's very, you know, here's what I'd say. It's great if that works. If you can blink twice focus on your breath, and that is able to allow whatever negative or unpleasant content to kind of drift away. It's wonderful. For many people, it may not work because the negative content, you have to remember what is feeding it. And that's where our attention also matters. It's not that a thought popped up. It's that we're poking at the thought. We're continuing to have the thought. We're elaborating on the thought. So part of what we're doing by saying, flashlight right here is we're not fueling the flashlight going somewhere else to proliferate and give a life to that negative content. So I would argue that, not argue, but I would say to you, you know, maybe the reason the negative thoughts kind of dissipate is because you're so then able to keep all of those attentional resources of your flashlight close to the sensations of the breath. So it just sort of dissolves and dissipates. And it's very important to remember, you don't want to be pushing anything away or suppressing, because frankly, that actually is a form, paradoxically, of paying attention to it. 
Yeah. If I say, don't think of a white bear, as I'm probably sure everybody's heard, I can guess what kind of color bear you're thinking about right now, right? And if you say to yourself <laughs> over and over, don't think of the white bear, don't think of the white bear, uh, what color bear? So yeah. it doesn't work. And so what you want to do is figure out a way to know your attention well enough and to practice having some relative amount of both control over it and receptivity mm. so that it can do the thing it needs to do and not fight against it, not battle further for where your mind goes. Yeah. I think having a lot of tools in your toolkit is very, very helpful. So thank you so much for, for sharing your, your powerful one. I know it's going to help so many people. I know our time is, is, is running to an end. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to be here today. I do want to ask you before I do ask the final two questions, where can people get a copy of your new book? It's called Peak Minds. It comes out October 19th officially, which is pretty cool. It's coming out, I believe, in Australia, the UK, India, America as well. Uh, all these great great countries. So make sure to go and get a copy of it right now, but where can they connect with you, Amishi, and, and buy a copy of your book? Oh yeah. Thank you. It's easy to find me. If you can remember my name, Amishi, <laughs> A-M-I-S-H-I.com. And there they can find about our lab's research and about the book. And really to just say that the book is my way of trying to make as accessible and beneficial to as many people as possible, the tools that our laboratory-based studies have found help a lot of people. Mm. It's an amazing book. I have no doubt that it's going to go absolutely crazy. So well done. And thank you so much for writing it. Um, my second last question for you, Mishi, is what do you love the most about yourself and your story? Oh, wow. I think what I love about myself and my story is that through the process of having crises, like a crisis of attention, I've come to know myself more and kind of have a sense of sort of kindness and friendliness toward myself. And I think that as I've kind of learned to be my own best cheerleader in some sense, supporter and, um, and friend, I think I've become more effective in, in everything I've tried to do in my life. Mm. My final question for you, this is my all time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end of all my conversations, it's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. I know, don't worry. And we'll just call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Hmm. Probably very much like what I've tried to express in this book is that Part of the journey of our lives is to not uh, have the notion that we won't have challenge, but that we can cultivate a better capacity to know our own mind and to train our own mind so that no matter what, we've advantaged our ability to meet challenge fully. And that doesn't just mean challenge, by the way, to embrace joy fully, uh, to have adventure fully, to have curiosity fully. So the peak isn't about sort of some successory of being on a mountaintop. So I don't see those kind of images in this, but it's that quiet sense of fullness, um, which I don't know how they're going to capture in a video, but I will feel it. Mm. <laughs> it's a great send off message. Dr. Amishi, thank you so much for your time today, your energy, your story, your wisdom, and your advice. I know it's going to help 
so many people. I know we could go on and on and on to unpack all this amazing stuff. Uh, but thank you so much for your time today and for joining me on this Storybox podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.